Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. and welcome to Squiggly Careers Podcast. I'm Sarah, one of the hosts, and this week I'm not joined by Helen, as it's one of our special editions, so I'm delighted to say that I'm joined by Christine Armstrong, who's the author of a book that everybody recommended to me. It was one of those books I started to feel more and more guilty that I'd not read because so many people were saying it was really good. A book called The Mother of All Jobs, which we're going to talk about today. And then actually, by pure coincidence, we were actually introduced by a mutual friend. So not only was your book recommended to me by everyone, but also we know lots of the same people. So I'm really excited to have this chat today. Thanks for having me. This is actually the first time Christine and I are meeting. So I was just joking with her that it's quite an intense way to meet someone to be like, hi, I'm now going to interview you for a podcast. But I spent the last week on holiday in Wales. You'll have heard me talk about it in the last podcast because I was very smug about my holiday and actually managed to read a whole book on a holiday which anybody else who's got a toddler will appreciate, that is no mean feat. And I have to say that is partly down to the very smart way in which Christine has actually written the book. So credit to Christine that she's come up with a format that I think is accessible and it means it's not going to be one of those books, you know, that sits by your bedside table and you look at them every night and think, one day, one day I will read all these books and be super smart, but you never quite get to them and they're a bit intimidating. So this is not that book. So what we're going to do today, I'm going to talk to Christine a little bit about why she wrote the book, ask her some specific questions about the things that really jumped out to me from the book around parenting and combining work and careers and some of the challenges. I'm sure she hasn't got all of the answers because I'm not sure any of us do. And then we're going to talk about some of the questions that you've submitted through Instagram. And then, as I always do when I'm interviewing somebody um, who's written a book, I will do my little book review live at the end, which I like to feel keeps people on their toes until the very last minute. So, Christine, as you will know, we're writing a book at the moment and it's a lot of work, a lot of dedication. And, you know, you, you did it by yourself. At least Helen and I are doing it together. What prompted you to think, yeah, I've got a book in me. I've got something I really want to write about. I'm not sure I ever really thought that. So when I was 15, my English teacher, Mr. Crump, told me he thought I should be a journalist because I was really, really nosy, and <laughs> um, which is true, and I like to write. And I kind of ignored him for about 20 years. And then I started writing for Management Today and I kind of had a blog on the back pages, really. And I wrote a little bit about being pregnant at work. But when I was struggling with my career, when I had one first one small child and then two and then later three, I really needed to find information and I was really, really struggling and I felt like it was just me. And so I went to interview women that we sort of, we called them power mums, but they were women <laughs> with big jobs and small children. And I would interview them about their working lives and their family lives and um, I would write it up. And Honestly, it was a ruse. I, I just went because I needed the information. <laughs> smart, I was just smart so <laughs> drowning. And I thought maybe they could help me and maybe one of them would give me a job or something. I mean, it was really quite a desperate kind of an outreach yeah. at this really... Or maybe one of them had the answer that yeah. you just hadn't discovered yeah. yet. <laughs> and so I would listen to them. I would write down all these things and like share them. And sometimes they would retract things, which was fine. But then I, as I sort of went along and I interviewed more and more people, I just realised that actually the things that they could say on the record when I was writing were really different to what they would say privately. Interesting. And not that they wanted not to tell the truth, but if you're talking about your boss or your business or your role, 
or difficult things that have happened in your relationship or difficulties with your kids, you can only say so much on the record. Mm. And that's completely rational. None of us kind of bear the souls of the yeah, worst bits yeah. of our jobs and our relationships and our kids on the record. But actually, what I realised was that we had this sort of really sanitised version of working parenting, uh, which is dominated by very high profile people, you know, Sheryl Sandberg and others, who are very different to the rest of us. They have incredible resources, but also they can't, the same as the rest of us, share the details of their lives, the gritty, the difficult, the hardship, the sleeplessness, the stress, the frustration, the extra glass of wine, you know, all of that. (laughs) But that's what this stuff is about, right? And that's the conversation that everyone is having in their own kitchen, in their own canteen, in the loos at work. And so that's where this book came from. And I'm not sure that I ever felt that it was a book, but I had brunch with an old editor of mine after writing management today, I wrote for an online newspaper for a while. And, and he said, you know, this is a book and you really need to write a book proposal. And I, yeah, OK, fine. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't. Um, and then about two weeks later, where's that bloody book proposal, Armstrong? Oh. So I kind of wrote it and I, it was like two pages. It was a bit shit. It was a bit typos. And I sent it to him and I said, is this shit? And um, anyway, he sent it to somebody and they came back really quickly and said, we want to talk to you about it. And that was Bloomsbury and I got a book deal. So wow. it was, it it was like pretty the, the fortunate. Dream. It was kind of the dream. Yeah. Oh. So talk to me a bit more about the title because I was quite torn about the title because you know the mother of all jobs there's a kind of implication there in terms of the title that this is a maybe book for women but actually as I read it I sort of thought well I want my partner Tom to read this as much as I want to read it so do you think the experiences are different based on gender or is it more it's just a fab title that gets people in and you hope people are going to share it with their partners. It wasn't my title. It came from the publisher and I really liked its ring to it. It's got yeah. you know, a humour about catchy, it, the yeah. mother of all battles, you know. And so I suppose that's appealing. I think in retrospect, I do worry that it, sort of reinforces the idea that this is a gender debate and mm. that only women should get involved with it. And so many people say to me exactly what you yeah. said, which is like, I've literally left highlighted sections for my yes. husband. Sometimes I meet men who say, I'm trying to get my wife to read this, you know, because I just started reading it and it was so relevant. I think Tom feels like he knows the book quite well because each time we like, <laughs> take Max for a walk, I'm like, oh yeah, because I was just reading about, you know, I'm reading that book for the podcast because he saw it on holiday and he saw it on the floor. He kept having to pick it up where I left it on the floor. And each time that conversation yeah. would be like, well, when I was reading the section about schools, Christine said this. And he was like, who is this woman? <laughs> well, I do say, and I make a point of it, that in every single chapter I interview dads, I always quote dads. So there is at yeah, least do, two, yeah. two chapters on dads. Um, so it isn't just interviews with mums. It's also interviews with the head teachers and child carers and, you know, business mm. leaders. It's kind of the system, I, I thought, when I read it. It was almost coming from every angle. Yeah, I'm trying to look at it holistically. And I try to not apportion blame. So sometimes people read it so you don't blame the men enough I'm like well it's no more their fault than it is ours you know <laughs> it's just a mess and you know we yeah. you know we need to be honest about that mess and talk about it because we can't fix it if we keep pretending that everything's fine and you just need to work a bit harder yeah 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 well it's interesting when I've got a little boy Max who's nearly two now and I definitely wish I'd read this book prior to having Max I'm glad I've read it now I've got a long stretch of parenting to go but certainly I wish I'd had read it before having him Um, So my top tip to people is this is not just if you're a current parent, if you're thinking about becoming a parent, I would definitely encourage you to read it. You know, my mum has been brilliant since I've had Max, has been really supportive and definitely had to support me a lot more than she probably had anticipated she would have to. And she often says, and it, it surprises me, that she feels like there's more pressure on me than there ever was on her. And if I look at it on paper, I think, well, you know, I've got in inverted brackets more than my mum, you know, in terms of whether it's the sort of job that I've got or what I'm spending my time doing. Socioeconomically, I would have probably more, you know, relatively, albeit, you know, she's baby boomer, so awesome generation to be in. And actually, you know, when she had me, she had me very young and it wasn't like they were in an amazing situation at the time, but she just said she feels like it's just very different. And I thought, actually, oh, I feel like I should feel really privileged and I've got this amazing stuff. So do you feel like you mentioned the book having done like your own like talking to lots of grandparents as well, which I thought was really lovely. Do you feel like almost like the society that we're in now is why this is so relevant right now that we've kind of there has been a really big change in terms of work and actually the system around us hasn't changed to reflect that? 
Yeah, I think exactly that. I mean, I grew up in a house where my dad worked a pretty traditional nine to five day. My mum, like many of my friends' mums, they all worked, but they worked in very part time, very local, very second job. And that was completely normal. And some of the grandmothers that you mentioned that interview said, you know, we knew it was a second job and there were irritations about that. I'm not saying, you know, that we weren't feminists. I'm not saying that we didn't have ambition, but it was just the way things were and it made sense. And one of the grandmothers who was really... She's a lovely, lovely woman, really warm, amazing, twinkly blue eyes. She talked about going to uh, for a headship. She was a primary school teacher and being invited to apply for the head job. And she went to it and she did the interview and she got in the car on the way back and thought, what on earth am I doing? I can't run a house and yeah. take care of my husband and make everything work and be a head teacher. I'm never going to apply for another head job again. And she didn't. And she was OK with that. And I, I haven't interviewed her children or her children-in-law, but I suspect that they wouldn't think like that because we've been brought up with different aspirations. And yeah. that in itself creates the pressure. But we've also quadrupled house prices in the last 20 years. Yeah, tell me so, about it. Yeah. yeah. So most of us are living in households where all the adults need to work in order yeah. to pay the mortgage or the rent. In addition to which, we've added always on and we've taken that nine to five day and we've just added the digital world onto that. And many of the people that I interview, many of the people I go and talk to when I go into businesses to talk about this now, they're online from the moment they wake up until the moment they go to bed. Mm-hmm. Um, I just interviewed somebody this morning she works in finance and she's been offered a new job and she asked what the hours were and they said standard working day is 7 a.m until 10 p.m five days a week um and you're just like well how (laughs) there's no way that could be good yeah how can anyone fit any caring into that you know how is anyone supposed to and she says well all the men have live-in nannies so you know they make it work and their wives work and but not on the same scale you know well we need to be honest about this because the reason there aren't women at the senior levels of finance on the whole is because of working like that so for me it was really about kind of being really brutal about all those changes and saying we also live further away from our families we commute for a longer time because of the house prices but nothing else has changed we haven't got affordable early years care in this country we've got the most expensive early years care in the world practically certainly in Europe we haven't changed our school hours Somebody emailed me and said that during World War II, when we needed women to work in factories, they just changed the school day to match the factory day overnight. No consultation, no concerns, just done. Seems really smart. (laughs) Never even discussed now, is it? No. We don't discuss the lack of correlation between the school day. And, and, you know, people with kids, I interview people all the time who are suddenly hitting primary school who go, oh, my God, my nursery runs seven till seven. I can just about cope. School runs nine until 3.15. What am I supposed to do with this? So, you know, I think we need to have those conversations and I don't think we can fix it unless we do. I think one of the things that I found particularly interesting and probably because it was very kind of pertinent to me was you described how many people experience the kind of loss of control. And I think there was one of the experts you spoke to who I really liked the description because I just thought, yeah, this was absolutely me to a T of when you certainly first have children, probably particularly, I would guess, for the first time, the kind of inexperience and isolation that kind of hits you simultaneously. I felt like I was one of those, oh, you know, I'm ready for this. It was definitely something I planned. I'd thought about it very hard. I'd thought about the timing very hard. I got a spreadsheet. This baby was so well prepared and I was so well prepared, etc. And yet when Max was born, I found it incredibly difficult And I think you mentioned somebody else in the book, and it makes me feel better that I'm not the only one that thinks this, who, when two weeks after paternity leave, Tom went back to work, I was honestly just like, this is definitely not the right way around. I should definitely be the one going back to work here. I'm rubbish at this. I don't know what I'm doing. I think this baby might hate me, was definitely kind of (laughs) top of mind. I mean, Max did a lot of crying, um, and he had a reflux, so he was also sick a lot. Mm -hmm. And I was just going, this is... A disaster. Mm -hmm. And at that time, I'd also chosen at the same time to leave the company that I've been working for as I went on maternity leave. And so this kind of double whammy of suddenly being like, all my best friends are people that I know through work, but they are genuine, very good friends. So I suddenly am not near any of them. So it's quite hard to see them. I don't live near any of my family. I've got a baby that just seems to cry and be sick. I seem to be rubbish. And actually, I'm quite used to thinking, getting quite a high sense of achievement from my work. And... I can't escape this because I'm sort of committed now. <laughs> sort you know, of. You're like, I can't put it mm. in the bin. <laughs> I was like, I can't really, I can't think my way out of this. Yeah. I was really, I really struggled. I remember um, I was the real classic of when like Tom would get home, I would literally like throw Max at him and just try and like go for a tiny walk and I would never want to go back. But I felt awful. I felt like I can't believe I feel like this. Yeah. And yet reading your book, I was thinking, oh, okay, so maybe I'm not 
absolutely I mean, the only one. <laughs> I literally interview hundreds of women who describe it. I mean, you describe it really, really powerfully and really beautifully. Um, it's harrowing for people. They go from this world where they know what they're doing. They spent 10 or 15 years in a professional environment yeah. where you always have your clothes on. Nobody vomits on you. Nobody pisses on you. Nobody poos unexpectedly. Yeah. <laughs> and everything you kind of know how to, you don't live in a world with children. And suddenly you are trapped in an environment, in a community where you don't know the postman. You don't know the delivery person. You may not know the neighbour. You probably don't have family. And every Everyone that you're connected to is somewhere else. And it is terrifying. And as my mother, who's a biologist, would say, we were never supposed to raise children this way. We were supposed to raise children in communities with aunts and sisters and uncles mm. and brothers where there would always be babies around and we babies wouldn't stress us out because we would see them all the time and they would yeah. be part of our lives. And, and we just don't have that. You know, we have very single generational lives. So... What you describe is incredibly, incredibly common in the kind of women that I often interview. And I think just the sense that it's completely normal is really, really yeah. helpful to people because people have different responses to the environment that you describe. And some of them kind of stick it out and say, right, well, as you say, I have chosen this. Not much else I can do. <laughs> Keep buggering on. It'll be OK. And they make friends. You know, they sort it out. And over time, they become accustomed to it and adjust. Other women really panic. And if they've got the resources, if they've got family or they can afford support, will go, do you know what? My safe, happy place is work and I'm running back as soon as I can. Mm. And that can work out really well, particularly in the early years. But what I notice, I've been doing these interviews for seven years now, is that sometimes that catches up with people and three or four or five years in, they're right. kind of like, I still haven't really psychologically adjusted to what's happened. Yeah. Um, and so then it takes a bit of unravelling. So I think just being honest about that experience and sitting with it and allowing people to expect it and know that it's normal is part of the process. Yeah, and one of the things that I find interesting is that not that many people are taking paternity leave yet or and certainly companies have not necessarily put in the structures yet that mean that people can take significant amount of paternity leave and I remember being absolutely distraught where uh, the company that Tom works at which is quite progressive and their financial services company now offer four months fully paid paternity leave and I was like that is just too little too late I was like that nearly made me cry yeah. because I think that would have been transformational actually when Tom was there and when we were doing it together and it was almost like we were kind of the one thing that saw us through that period of time is we were always very much one team our attitude was it was kind of us against him which was quite useful at times and so when he was around I was 100% better felt much more myself we were kind of in it it's probably not what I'd want to do all day every day I always intended to go back to work it was the I'm doing this by myself and this feels so significantly different and I don't think I'm very good at it. Yeah. And actually, he was always better from day one. He was always better at it. And I probably anticipated that as well. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I'm really interested in is, you know, what companies can do around paternity leave to just give people that little bit more time with something so significant that's changing that it's not just typically the mum mm -hmm. by themselves, because biologically it does tend to be the mum because they're the closest in that moment. I think paternity leave is incredibly important and not always for the reasons that are obvious. So I think that there is a really, really critical piece around supporting the mother and the baby. Yeah. And if you look at more traditional cultures, you know, there are lots and lots, you know, the Chinese, you know, there's a lot of support for the mother and other people support help with the baby initially and other people support yeah. the mother and cook for the, her and look after her. And we don't do that. We just abandon this person who's just been sewn back together again by a yeah. couple of midwives at two o'clock in the morning yeah. and just abandon them with this baby. They don't know how it works. And then, you know, their partner rushes off to work. So I think there is a big support thing and I think that that's really critical to bonding and feeling happy as a mum and secure and confident and you need all the support you can get wherever you can get it from. I think there are other things with paternity though is that it actually aggravates the gender disharmony or the kind of focus on it being women's issue is that the woman then becomes the expert on raising the baby. Yeah. And so if you spend four or six or eight months at home, then you know when nappies need changing, you know what the baby eats, you know like what he or she wants and how to soothe them. And the dad gets pushed to the sidelines. And many dads talk about this. Well, I never know and I always get it wrong. And so they kind of retreat. And then we end up with this mum as the care provider mm. primarily. And then they're more likely to step out of work so it's really important to, that both the mum and the dad have experience of having the baby on their own yes. and building their own relationship and their own skills the other thing which is interesting about paternity leave which should have read is that there's some research that says that men's 
Testosterone drops really dramatically when they have children and it makes them more caring and more nurturing and sort of makes them more empathetic with their children. But if they go straight back to work, it goes back to where it was. So it actually biologically changes fathers to be at home with their children. And if you think about fathers in other cultures, sort of moderating middle age and, you know, you sort of go to Greece or Italy and, you know, men will pick up your kids in the street and, and, you know, it wouldn't happen in an Anglo-American culture. So I think there's something about a softening where actually it's really, really beneficial for men to do so. I think if there's one change that we can press for quickly, I would say, look, you know, the paid take up of paternity leave is just enormously important. Yeah. And I think there's a couple of people who I now know who in very high profile, very senior jobs who are male who have done it for quite a significant period of time, for sort of a three or four month period. And I think that's so important as well, because when you're in any organisation, it's okay something existing, but often for it to become acceptable, you need people to role model it. You need to see that actually that's a done thing and that's okay to do. Because yeah. I think the first person to be doing any of this stuff is always really hard. I remember I started working part-time at Sainsbury's and I think I was the only person really who'd ever put in a part-time request who hadn't got kids. Mm-hmm. And it's really scary to be the first in anything. And that's the bit is at the moment I feel like we're really lacking male role models of people who actually are doing that, you know, whether it's in the business world or just generally in in the world, going, I'm choosing to take that month, the four months, but that's probably financial, I guess, to a certain extent. It is, if they're paid for it. So we we see the difference. So with a government scheme where you don't get paid, you see 1% to 2% take up in companies that are offering four months Mm. or six months or obviously Aviva with a year who are offering it paid immediately take up as shooting, according to the HR departments, to yeah. 70, 80, 90%. So the pay is really, really critical. I think the other fascinating thing is that when you read interviews, the Sunday Times magazine did some recently, but there's a lot of blogs as well, with fathers who take that time. And when I interview them, they sound very much like you. You know, they, they describe it. Well, you know, my partner went back to work and I was staring at this baby thinking, yeah. oh my God, what do I do now? Yeah. And they're just as panicked. And it's, you know, I think it's beneficial for them to understand and what they say at the end of it is I have so much respect now for all the women who've ever done this and it's completely changed my worldview. So I think it is a really, really important social development and if you look at the Nordics where they're much further ahead of this, you see how it changes. Always the Nordics. Always the Nordics. Doesn't matter what you flex for working. I was like, at some point are we all just going to move there? I sort of feel like that's... I guess we're going to have to. We're going to stop talking about it. When you interview them, they say it's not as perfect as we make it out to be. And they think it's really funny that we're obsessed with them. I suppose you need need the examples, though, don't you? So you get excited about it. One of the things I really enjoyed in the book and found really interesting was some of the chapters you've almost divided up based on the kind of dynamic in terms of the relationship that you have and the choices that you might make. I actually found it interesting reading some of the ones that I've not made. And when I talk about dynamic, what I mean is you talk about ones where... Maybe one person is working full time, somebody else has chosen to stay at home, whether you've got what I describe as kind of dual career couples, I think you call it alpha, 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 alpha. which scares yeah, me a bit. I'm jobs. like, yeah, I actually couldn't quite work out what we were, I okay. was, I, which I found interesting, which is why I ended up reading a few, because I was like, am I that or are we that one? Because we are, as we, as you described when we were talking earlier, we're definitely a household where to afford our childcare, we absolutely both have to work because, you know childcare at a nursery full time is basically like another mortgage is what we've discovered. Yep. So we both have jobs that we really enjoy and are really committed to. And actually, we share things like drop offs and pickups pretty much equally. If Tom was listening, he would say he's an accountant. He reckons he does about 70%. But I like to think it's slightly more closer to 50-50. So we'll see. We'll, we'll settle on 60-40. But fundamentally, we are both want to work, want to work more or less full time and share the parenting together. And I think those sorts of choices are a really big deal for people. When I talk to people, that's the bit that everybody's kind of grappling with is all these kind of trade-offs around. Often it does come down to like time and money, you know, how much do you want to be near your house and all, all of those kind of things. And I just wondered whether from the people that you've spoken to, do you think people consciously make these choices or almost do you think you have to live some of it? And I'm sort of finding that actually... We've had to sort of try it out. Like the first time where we were doing nursery drop-offs and pickups, it took me ages to adjust just because I'd lost the flexibility of choosing when to leave. So, you know, suddenly I had to actually walk out. As in, I couldn't choose to stay for an extra 20 minutes because we were having a really interesting discussion. I was like, I actually have to leave because if I don't, my son is literally stranded in nursery. And I live quite far away because I work in London. And so I've got a house just outside London because of how much, you know, houses cost, etc. So... We'd sort of got a plan, 
But it was only when we sort of started testing it when we were like, does this work? Does it not? And he was ill quite a lot when he first went to nursery, like lots of kids are. So we seriously considered, do we want to get a nanny? But we were really keen for him to be in a social setting. And we sort of stuck with it and we're really glad. And now it sort of works pretty well for us. I'm scared about the primary school thing. So I'm going to I'm gonna keep my head in the sand for a little bit longer on that. We've just about got nursery working. But I was just wondering, is that something that people could do, do you think, to think about this a bit more beforehand? Or do you think actually you've got you to be in it to know? It's kind of why I've written the book is because the book's full of stories of people who've gone before you. And I think mm. all of us do exactly what you said, which is we try it and then we screw it up and then yeah. we reconfigure it and see if it works better that way. And everybody's doing that in their own household, right? Yeah. Um, and so what I wanted to do with the book was say, okay, well, if we played it forward, if we interviewed you where you are now, yeah. what advice would you give yourself okay. 18 months ago? Then hopefully people can read it and go, hmm, that's a really interesting challenge. I hadn't thought about the school years. So where does that mean we need yes. to live? How does that mean we need to structure our day? How do we balance it between us? And how do we do this? I mean, one of the things I talk about a lot is seeing your household as one unit. So how do we share mm. this between us in a way that makes sense for both of us? And what you're describing where, you know, he'll do pick up one day and then you do it the next day and then he does is great because you're sharing the endeavour. And that tends to, in my experience of interviewing people, lead to sort of happier outcomes in terms of the couple. Mm-hmm. I think sometimes where couples default to one or other parent always doing everything, in yeah. inverted commas, you can breed huge resentment. And some of those, when you interview those people, say, I never agreed to this. I never talked about it. We never discussed yeah. it. I just, how did I end up being my mother or my, you know, whoever it is they think they've turned into? And so what I'm saying is, look, elevate that, like have a look at it before you do it, have a think about it, plan it, and then make your decisions accordingly. You're still going to have to adjust them. It's not going to give you a magic solution, but you can see a bit more. And that's you're sort of starting to get into the territory of the people who are getting this right brackets-ish. I'm not sure there is a kind of right answer to a lot of this stuff. What I think there might be is the right answer for you. And I think the right answer for you might look different to someone else. But do you see things in common from the people who are going, actually, I am making it work. I've got the right work, children, life, caring, balance. and Or does nobody ever feel like they've got it right? No, I think people do. I think that people can get it right at this moment. I think one of the things about raising children and the reason that I've done the chapters in different phases of your children's life is that it changes all the flipping time. So just as you think, hey, OK, yeah. we've got the nursery sorted. It sort of works. Suddenly you hit schools and it doesn't. Or you hit secondary schools and it doesn't work. Or there's a teenage crisis. So I think the people who do well are the people who see their household as one unit, who sit or who establish themselves in a community with a network of support which they build for themselves Mm -hmm. if they don't have it naturally. So they make friends with other parents, they make friends with childcare providers, they've got stability of options and they've got solutions if things, if the train stops in the tunnel and it's pouring with rain (laughs) and the children at the gate, they've got answers and they've got people to help. They're people that make decisions actively and adjust as they go and just go, do you know what? This is not working at this particular phase. So we're going to try something new. We're going to step back. Maybe we'll change schools. Maybe we'll move house. They're not locked into patterns. Mm. And the people that I find I, I most worry about and you know exhibit most signs of distress are the people who are very locked in patterns, very right. like, this is what I have to do. And often it's financial. They're people who have taken on really big financial responsibilities. For good reasons, but that means they've got no flexibility and they can't work four days a week. They can't leave earlier. They can't not be on their email. They can't work from home because then they wouldn't get promoted or they wouldn't get their bonus or whatever it is that they think. And they've set themselves in these very, very rigid spaces that can be really painful. Yeah, and actually I talk to quite a lot of people when we talk about things like flexible working where you can see that people feel like they just can't, they may be just not in the right environment or in the right culture. They can see that there's a different possibility and that there's a different world they'd like to be in, but they recognise that's not where they are. And that, that feels so hard, doesn't it? That feels so hard to move away from. Well, it's about identity, isn't it? If we, if you go into it and you think, look, my core identity is a career professional and, you know, I've been really good and I've got these qualifications, I've studied, I've excelled, I've been good at my job. And then you have a baby and you're like, OK, well, who am I now? Am I a mum? Am I a woman? Am I a career professional? Which of these three things am I? And these identities change. And I think particularly after first children, many of us really hold very strongly, or I certainly did, onto my career professional. That's what I know mode. (laughs) And so working flexibly just wasn't something that I thought was part of my DNA, even though actually it would have been by far the most sensible thing to do when I look back on it. And so it's about adjusting and evolving that self-identity and allowing it to evolve. And sometimes I, I interview people who really describe a crisis around their second child. And I think I've sort of come to a conclusion that sometimes it's, the second child is the time when they really give in to parenthood and they kind of go, <laughs> OK, all of the rest of it is kind of noise now. 
yeah. this is my primary focus and everything else has to fit around it. And there's a big adjustment. So I think it's a bit about identity. I do have a bit of a beef about flexible work, which is that, you know, it's completely missold and it often doesn't work in professional jobs very well at all. And, and you know, I think we need to talk about that more as well, but it's probably a separate issue. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, we did a podcast about flexible working because it's something Helen and I are both really passionate about. I think because it means so many things to different people it's really misunderstood and kind of labelled often in quite a negative way versus actually being something that can actually lead to an awful lot of benefits for both individuals and organisations. I think when it's seen as something that you kind of get as a benefit, oh, we're just like giving this to you, you should be really grateful, it sort of misses the point. Yeah. And I think we actually have to be really careful. I do think the flip side of flexibility that I'm increasingly seeing, and it's something I experience myself, is the fact you can be always on means that, yes, you can be really flexible, but that essentially can mean you never stop working. And so you work on the train. And yes, you might have an hour and a half hiatus as you're putting your kid to bed. That relaxing hour and a half when you're yeah. trying to force feed baby yeah. beans down your child and bath them and yeah. deal with a tantrum. All that yeah. And then you go back to work again. Yeah, because you've had such a nice break. Yeah. I think my problem with flexibility is exactly that, is that too often I interview people who say, well, I've negotiated, I've used up every chip that I've got yeah. to negotiate for a three-day week and now I'm still expected to be online five days a week and yeah. I'm contactable. And if I'm not, then I know that I won't keep my job. And even now I work flexibly, I know I won't get promoted and I know I won't get a pay rise. And so their frustration and their rage means that they're quite likely to go and do something else. So I think unless we figure out how to put some boundaries around work, um, it becomes this impossible situation where actually people are paying such a high price for that flexibility. They're literally doing unpaid work. And I'm really troubled by that. I'm really troubled by the fact that sometimes we're not honest enough about that. I always think the four-day thing is really interesting because I've worked four days a week for a long time now, both without a baby and with one. And actually it made no difference because that was not the reason I worked four days a week. And what was interesting, I think, because it wasn't led by having a child, it was led by actually kind of a side project and spending time on Amazing If... I was always very discreet about how I spent my time. And I was very strict because I was going, I've got a day a week and I'm actually doing other things and I'm not being paid on that day. And so there's something mentally about how I compartmentalised that time because it was for very different reasons that then meant it really worked for me. My observation is actually lots of people who do it because they're doing it to spend time with their children, actually then they end up working or they end up checking in emails or people feel like, oh, can you dial into this conference call? Mm -hmm. Whereas that doesn't happen to me because people go, oh, she's offering another business. She's doing something different. There's some sort of acceptance that, oh, I don't have to do anything. So I think that everything should be reason neutral. It shouldn't matter what you're doing. But I find it fascinating that because I do something that's a bit more unusual, actually the assumptions and norms that I find that people make about me is different to the people who are doing it for different reasons. It's about our values, you know, and it's about, you know, if we don't think that that time that somebody's negotiated to spend with their child, whether they're a man or a woman, is of great value, and we're like, oh, they just need to respond to this, it'll only take a couple of minutes, you know, I just just need an approval because otherwise the project's going to be delayed or it's going to stall or this (laughs) client deal's not going to get signed off. And suddenly that person is very stressed and there's nothing worse, as you all know, than trying to deal with a toddler and work at the same time. It's literally the definition of hell. Trying to do it. Once I did try it once. Yeah. Quite notoriously, and a second later, I realised Max was literally like whacking his hand down on my quite expensive Apple Mac, and I was thinking, "Oh, this doesn't really work work very well, does it?" I like tried. I actually think you can't do it. I can't combine them because he just gets really interested and wants to come and play and stuff, and you just think. I'm just getting angry at everything. I'm getting yeah. angry at him. And I'm getting you, angry at the work. Then you're really angry with yourself because yeah. you know you're behaving yeah. like a terrible, terrible person. Yeah. yeah, it's, you know, so anyway, so flexibility is really tricky. I mean, people do make it work and your description yeah. of boundaries are great. And I hope people take from that. You have to set those boundaries and be ruthless about them. If you're going to negotiate for it, you're going to pay a price probably. So, you know, at least make it work yeah. for you. Yeah, um, that, that, that would be my advice. Like definitely. really build a wall around it. Enjoy it. Revel in it. You know, take the moment. Other people say actually just doing a day at home a week works yeah. much better than working flexibly because yeah. they still get paid, but they can do the school run or the nursery drop and they feel calmer. Fine. My point is find what works for you and then, you know, yeah. set your boundaries and stick to them. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So we had a few hot topic type questions um, from our Instagram followers uh, when we let them know we were um, going to be talking to you today. And I'm pretty sure there's definitely no kind of right answer to some of these questions, but they are things that I think particularly when I've done maybe closed forums, people are starting to feel more confident asking. So I think these are almost the questions that people, the things that you've been asking people that often don't get talked about. So lots of people asking, is there a right time to start a family? Mm. No. Can I just leave it at that? Yeah. I don't think anybody ever thinks, right, this is it. This is the moment, baby. Come on, yeah. let's do it. I think it's always a compromise. You never think you can afford it, for sure. I mean, that's just universal. There's always a promotion. There's always a big project. There's always a trip. I think my kind of observation on this stepping back from it is I've just interviewed too many couples who struggle to conceive and so for me it's like look if it's something you want to do I don't want to be boring I don't want to sound like your gran but if it's something that's important (laughs) to you just don't hang around until you know it's really really difficult and and you will work it out I mean I interviewed somebody actually I went to school with I did it for a magazine article And she accidentally got pregnant during her A-levels. And we were talking about our lives being completely different. She had a place at Oxford and she had to give it up. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she did her degree later and stuff. But actually, she's had a really amazing life and she's had two more kids. She's got a great relationship. You know, we kind of looked at our lives. We've done everything completely different, but it's all worked out. You know, you've got to keep adapting. And whenever it happens, you know, you'll make it work. So I kind of think maybe worry about it less and worry about the timing less and think more about, you know, how you want your life to look and how you're going to structure it. Yeah, because I, I mean, I am one of the most planned people I know. Whenever you do the Myers-Briggs, you know, the kind of last one is about like, are you a J? Do you like to be planned and organised? And that's definitely me. We already mentioned the spreadsheet. And so I definitely planned it. I definitely had a moment, you know, there are practical things that you do where you suddenly go, okay, I now feel ready. But actually, then it took us quite a long time to then actually kind of get pregnant and to have Max to the extent where you're starting to get into, oh, is there, have we got to think about things? Are we going to have to think about IVF or other other options? And, you know, fortunately for us, it kind of worked out. But certainly, I am somebody who I I still really consciously planned it, but it still then took much longer than I anticipated. And then I was in a different job to the one that I'd imagined because things change in the meantime. And so I think... Of course, the practical considerations matter. And I, reading your book, I think if you'd read your book as you were thinking about that, there are some practical things you might think about beforehand, just in yeah. terms of where you're living, what you might want to do to sort of set yourself up for success. Yeah. Which yeah. I, you know, and I, I am very grateful for the fact that, like, you know, one of my sisters does live in London. I only actually live two hours away from my parents. So they're not super close, but they definitely are close enough. And some of that was unconsciously useful, you know, when it kind of got to actually needing that help and and needing that support. So the next question, which kind of leads on. So you've decided it's the right time and you've, you know, you've had your baby. How much time should you have off work? Lots of people asking, is there a right amount of time? So there's some research from America. I don't know if I believe it really because we have such different corporate values. Yeah. But I'll tell you. Don't anyway. the Americans go back really quickly? Oh yeah, because they have to use you know some disability allowance. They'll go back after th- three weeks or four weeks, whatever it's ghastly, or six weeks. But um, so there's some research that suggests that up to six months doesn't hurt your career, but after six months, um, right. it does have implications for your career prospects for promotion and pay rises. And there are moves in Germany and other places, I think, to actually reduce maternity leave because the longer you stay out, the less likely you are to go back. 
back because you get very normalized in right, kind okay, of being yeah. at home and, and so on. And it's harder to go back because obviously things have changed. All of that said, you have to make your own decisions. And I, I'm sort of very clear about this, really, is that you know yourself, you know what rewards you, you know how you want to raise your children, and you need to make that decision for yourself. And try not to be bullied by other people, either yeah. to stay out longer or to go back sooner. You know, try to really think about your own decisions and think about what you'll look back on. Because I've interviewed older women where maternity leave was much shorter and they've said things like my biggest regret was that I went back too soon and that's quite a common regret so you know just hold that perspective have a think about it and then when you do it maybe even write down why you did it this way so that if you ever look back at it and think is that the right thing to do go no these were the reasons that I did it this made sense yeah I remember talking to quite a few people who were sort of chief executives um you know who got kids who are maybe a bit more grown up now and lots of them saying to me don't go back too soon. Because I actually wanted to go back quite quickly because, of, as I've described, I wasn't living it. I was going, I want to go back and do something. What I actually found was quite useful for me was actually just reconnecting with that world. So it wasn't actually going back to work. It was more the kind of keep in touch type thing. So though I wasn't going back to my previous organisation, what I did start to do, and it made a massive difference to just how happy I was, was reconnecting with some of my friends and going to some events and doing some of the workshops that we do with Amazing If and just getting a semblance of some of that stuff back. And for me, that was important because that was a lot of my identity was all wrapped up in that. And so actually, I think I then was confident to have a little bit longer off and to wait for a job that I really wanted to do next. Yeah. But I think the thing that helped me through that was that I started to do something. Yeah. So I think that, that was the good for identity me. piece. And yeah. I think, you know, finding ways to either be comfortable with your adjustment in identity or to reclaim bits of what you've had mm. in the way that you've described is really, really useful. And if you feel socially excluded, it is like physical pain. If you feel like all of your friends are, I don't know, going off to the industry event or whatever yeah. it is, uh, you know, that can feel terrible. You know, like you've been excluded and you're left out and you're missing out. So being able to engage with that I think is really helpful to people and then the last one which I think is a tough one a few people talking about you know not having family support and you mentioned uh, in your book how important that is and how helpful that can be which is definitely something I've I've appreciated and as you said people don't now tend to live in local communities in quite the same way that perhaps we did previously and a few of our followers actually live you know outside of the UK so perhaps not even living in the same country which when I think now about the idea of not living in the same country as my grandparents and um, well, Max's grandparents my mum and dad and Tom's family I'm like wow they've helped us so much over the last 18 months it's been really instrumental I remember going for my interviews while on maternity leave and Tom's mum coming down specially looking after Max while I was still breastfeeding and all those kind of things and like we, we definitely needed some of those people I mean there's always other alternatives but for us it was massive and so I can really appreciate how people kind of find it hard so if there's not a family, what would you suggest? Is it about friends? Is it yeah. about other people, the essentially? Thing, the thing with that identity thing that we've just talked about is, you know, if your identity has been defined by your profession and what you've done as a job, and then you go and live in this community where you know no one, everyone seems to have the same response, which is the people I meet, well, they're nice, but they're not like me. You know, I work in insert career, insert job, yeah. insert, you know, I work in events or whatever, whatever, finance or whatever you do. And so they feel that they don't, they're not very interested in those people. They don't really connect with them. What you discover is that this shared life experience of raising this scrap of a newborn that's hollering at you is that actually you have a lot in common because you've got a child at the same age and that even if they come from a completely different background, have completely different life experience, you will make amazing friendships if you put in a bit of effort. And those Mm. people will sustain you not just for the first three months or the same six months, but if you stay in the area for the next 20 years, they will become some of your best friends if you give it the time. And many of us don't because we're running back to work. I didn't the first time and suddenly realised that my worst experience, absolutely mortifying, was when my oldest daughter was about three and a half four and she was in preschool and I went into I was facilitating a board meeting and I came back and I had out and had 17 missed calls and my husband was working abroad and basically she had a temperature of 40 degrees and so they had called me a couple of times then they'd call Chris and he said well I'm in Cyprus I'm not used to you then they called me again and eventually the last message was from the local vicar's wife saying hi Christine it's Josie she's on my sofa she's drinking hot ribena she's fine she's had cowpaw no problem I had to call Josie and ask her her address I literally didn't know where this woman lived and we are great friends now and our children are friends and I'm so grateful to people like her who showed me that actually having a community and you know being involved was really really valuable yeah I think I've so when I read your book actually the one 
area where I thought, yeah, I didn't do that was that. Certainly NCT, I wasn't kind of quite connecting with that as a kind of group. And, you know, I'm, I'm an introvert by nature. Tom's introverted, more introverted than I am. So I don't find meeting new people really easy. It's not kind of a natural thing for me. I've got very kind of deep long-term relationships. But what I'm finding now and starting to invest in a little bit more, and reading your book made me lean into it a little bit more, I think, was the other people who go to nursery with Max and we're just getting into like the birthday party stage. Yeah. And albeit though we've not been to everyone, we are quite conscious about going, we are going to try and make the effort to go to some of them and chat to some of the other mums because Max is going to be going to school probably Yeah. with lots of these kids because we're all in the, unless people move away, you're all in the local area and you can all kind of help each other out a little bit. Because if you don't, Max won't get invited to so much stuff. I know, which I'm like, oh God, then he's going to be like worse than us. I, I think know. that's like our biggest I fear. I mean, this is the thing that I came to understand <laughs> is that actually mums tend to invite the people that they know and like and they'll, you know, they'll send the WhatsApp round going, oh look, God. we're all going to the park at three or we're yeah. meeting for a picnic after school or we're doing this on Saturday afternoon. Anybody's around want to come to trampolining or football or whatever the yeah. thing is. And it just makes life easier. And, you know, when you've got a network of mums, I mean, now, because I've got three, I've kind of given into the whole thing. I mean, I've just been like... <laughs> You know, every time there's a party, there's a chat on your WhatsApp going, don't worry, I'll do this week. Could you do the one in two weeks time? And you don't have to go to every flipping party anymore. You can pick and choose and, you know, somebody else will take them. You go, brilliant, because that means I've got two hours and need to run in and do something. So it just, it supports you enormously as well as makes you raw laughing. I mean, you know, my best mum friend is a stay-at-home mum who's Irish, who barely drinks. Um, and I, like, we we were so different. And yeah. and yet she makes me howl laughing. And she's brilliant. We've both got three kids. And without that kind of support system, you know, yeah. my parents, they're not in another country, but they live quite a long way away. And they're very supportive like yours. But, you know, they're not there day to day. They're not yeah. there when, you know, all the kids are sick and you just need to laugh about it because your life is so miserable for that yeah. 48 hours. Yeah, Max is just, uh, he had chicken pox about five weeks Ugh. ago. And I was, I was just like, well, I mean, oh, my God. <laughs> he's, yeah, he doesn't, he's never slept brilliantly anyway, which actually you do talk a little bit about sleep deprivation, which... I was reading just being like, yeah, he's never been a good sleeper. We've always kind of really, really struggled with that. But I think when I was thinking about one thing I was going to do differently, having kind of read the book, there was things where I was like, yep, I'm a bit wiser having gone through the experience and some of it was good hindsight. Some of it was I'm going to think about these things for the future. But the thing in the short term, I was like, right, as somebody who is introverted, I have to definitely make an effort. That doesn't come naturally to me. Yeah. But we're, we're very mindful of not wanting Max to be really, not necessarily not be introverted, but also to be sociable and to be yeah. included. And because we're quite an insular couple, actually, in ourselves, we've been together for like 20 years for a long time and stuff. So I was like, right, that's the one thing I need to get a bit better at is I'm never very good at like chatting, you know, at the drop offs and pickups. We're both quite militant. It's like, got to get the train, got to do this thing. And just sometimes thinking it's okay to like stop and have a chat. Because I think we're the parents that sort of always like there and gone really quickly. One of the things that changed for me was a kind of an awareness that actually also being involved in school life is quite helpful. Like knowing who the teachers are, having a yeah, little bit of presence. Parents, yeah. I mean, my kids go to a state school, so in a private school, you probably you just pay your money. You don't need to worry. But uh, <laughs> since ours are in a state school, um, so one of the things I did was put on a committee to help the school do a bit of fundraising, a bit of community support, and we developed this plastic fishing initiative, which we'd seen I'd seen somebody do in Amsterdam, where we take the kids on the boat out on boats in the Docklands, oh, nice. and they pull the plastic out and then we work with the charity to build a boat made out of recycled plastic but that was brilliant because it just meant that I met loads of people because it was mm. like the shared endeavour it kind of gave me a reason to talk yes. to lots of people and could you come and you know help with this and help with that yeah, and supervise kids yeah it, and it felt to me like I was offering something of value and something that I kind of with my professional background is like oh yeah. I know how to put a project together yes. I know you know <laughs> I know how to nick ideas from Amsterdam and make yeah, them come to yeah, life yeah. and you know and and I can offer some value and also do something useful for the school without having to do things I'm really bad at, like yeah. make cakes and yes, I think that's because that's what I think. I'm like, oh, it's gonna yeah. make cakes, and like I don't cook. No. Like, and, and Tom doesn't do that either. He does yeah. like cooking, but he certainly doesn't bake. So I think it's because sometimes of the assumptions you make about what that looks like, and you just think, oh no, that's not. not I'm not good you at any just of that. Got stuff. to find the thing that you yeah. can offer and and just do <laughs> that. that. Just re- it's that. that boundary thing. That's it's like you know somebody somebody said, well, you know, I just give 250 quid's worth of vouchers for the summer fate. That's what I can do. That's it. And I'm like, fine. Do you know what? Yeah. That's, you've contributed. Do your thing. Do your thing and then be done with it. Like, don't torture yourself. So now the book's out and people have been reading it. I'm sure you're getting lots of feedback. You've been talking about it a lot. Is there anything you wish you'd included in the book? Ooh. We were talking about uh, recording audiobooks before we start and Christine was giving me some top tips to make sure that we do a good job when we do ours. So you've had to, you know, not only write it, but read it all out to everybody you're talking about it a lot 
are there any areas where you think, oh, yeah, when I do edition two or version two, this is an area I want to be in it? I think the thing which I get asked most and, and I get called into businesses a lot is how do we fix this from the business side? Okay. Like, So lots of businesses are going, look, certainly some of us within this business are well-intentioned, um, maybe not everybody, but, you know, yeah. we would like to have more senior women. We would like to support the men with families. We know that life's changing. What do we do? And I think if I included more in it or if I wrote something else, it would really be to look at what's the difference between those businesses that are really able to manage hours because that ultimately my core belief is that that's what it comes down to at the end of the day what's the difference between those that are managed to have a team that is disciplined that is focused that goes in and does its job and then goes home and does something else versus those that just have these sprawling endless days of stress and anxiety you know I interviewed somebody this morning who's talking about how unproductive those sprawling days are because everybody leaves everything to the last minute and then it's 11 o'clock at night and everyone's trying to work on the big presentation tomorrow instead of being ordered and what I'm coming to the view is that the difference is actually managers it isn't companies yeah it's not corporate wide it's one individual manager can make a massive difference to a team and one can't so how do we find those managers how do we spot them how do we support them and encourage them and what kind of things do they put in place that make it possible for men and women to work and be successful and do well at their jobs and also care for families in a way that fits with their view of what a good parent or a good carer if it's older parents looks like Yeah, to me, when I read the book, I feel like it's very much aimed at like you as an individual. It's a really nice kind of personal read rather than like a corporate business book. But I could imagine maybe within that book, like that's the next book. I think you've kind of got your next book in there. And actually, as as ever, I like to do a bit of a book review for people so that they... i terrified. um, I know. I sort of feel like I do this in a really harsh (laughs) way. I like wait wait for everyone to get to the end. (laughs) So if you've not got the book already, as ever, you'll get the chance to win it. On Instagram, we'll get some copies for a competition. Things that I really loved about the book, the first is at the end of every chapter, Christine has included a section that's called Too Wired and Tired, which is a brilliant summary of kind of the key points within the chapters. So what the chapters give you are the stories, the flavour, the characters, and they're the things that are really interesting and really engaging that I really enjoyed and probably the things that you remember the most because you tend to remember stories about people. But actually, if there was a section where I was thinking, is this section for me? Or, oh, I've been interrupted by Max throwing a yogurt at me. I'd think, okay, I'm not going to read all the rest of that section. I'll go to the summary and then I might come back to it. If you're thinking, I really struggle to get through books, I think it's very dippable. You can dip in and out of it. I thought the stories were a really nice, diverse range of people. So this wasn't... Actually, I didn't read it and go, oh, this is lots of people exactly like me. I thought this is some people a bit like me and then lots of people who do loads of other things who are also all interesting and you can learn from and who've got different perspectives. So there was no one size fits all, which I think is very representative of actually what we're kind of all experiencing. It's super honest. I think probably people are are feeling that, hopefully from hearing you talk today. I felt like you were giving your point of view, being very honest, but equally not getting into the realms of going, I've got all the answers. You know, there wasn't like, this is the answer. And talking about your own experiences. And though you said you wanted to resist doing it, I really liked your plan for living. So at the end of the book, it's kind of like a bit of a manifesto. I don't know whether yeah, you, you yeah, would yeah. want to use that word. Yeah. But I quite like the manifesto because I think, well, probably what we all need to do was my conclusion at the end is going, you've kind of got to come up with your own plan for living. Yeah. And yours was kind of your conclusions from all the, you know, you talk to so many different people, you get so many different insights. And so I was reading a lot of it and thinking, yeah, that'd be for me, that'd be for me. And then it was okay to go, oh, I might change that one a bit for me, for my circumstances. So I thought that was really lovely. And yeah, my really, my one hope when we do feedback, we always talk about what went well and even better if. My even better if actually was just the point around wanting partners to read this and this not feeling like this was just for mums because I did really feel like this was actually much more about what it means to not only have a family but maybe even to have things like caring responsibilities there are so many people now who have caring responsibilities and to your point at the end when we were talking about hours really when you get into kind of the business case for this it's also about just giving people the space to do other things other than work when you take it to its most extreme and you know you've got a real kind of sense of focus in terms of families but really I think you know this is as important as a manager for the people that I manage who've not got kids because they're not going home to look after a toddler, but they are going home to do exercise or to see their partner 
or to build really good relationships, Absolutely. we all need time where yeah. we're not at work all of the time. So the way that I see it is that parents are very much the canary in the mine for the way that we've started <laughs> working. And yeah. it's the most intense pressure is, and the moment when you feel it so painfully yeah. um, is when you first have a child. But actually, none of us should be working 18 hours a day. It's unproductive. We can't concentrate that long. We yeah. make bad decisions. So really, this is about how we work and how we make that work. And, you know, we're humans. We're not machines. And how we make that, you know, work to our advantage rather than our disadvantage and that's kind of what I wanted to throw out there and it's not about working flipping harder all the time and getting right. a bigger whiteboard and making the lunches the night before because you know it's really <laughs> about containing work where it should be and being yes. good at that and then being able to do something else yeah I think that's a tendency isn't it to just keep adding it's like add more and more stuff and sometimes it's because you're excited and you're interested in things but at some point if you're going to add something you've got to take something yeah. away and I yeah. think think you actually had that in the book as one of the realities actually very early on was you were saying don't forget if you're adding a child into your life some other things do have to go yeah. and actually I think that was the realization for me is that obviously you know that rationally but it's probably not until it happens that you realize like oh okay so I have got to be at home a couple of nights of the week. I spend more time in my house than I've ever spent yeah. before. Yeah, it's <laughs> because, weird. Because you're home. And also yeah. I'm home at really weird times. I'm like, oh, it's like half six and I'm at, I'm at home. Yeah. <laughs> because you've had to get back to go yeah. and get him from nursery to do that. So suddenly, actually, I probably see my partner more than I've ever seen him. Yeah. Because I'm at, I'm at home more often and he does yeah. tend to get home. I probably eat a bit better. You know, I actually, you I, I'm, I'm not out and like messing around kind of as much. I've definitely had to figure out a new way to put exercise back into my life and yeah. do that in a slightly different way. I've talked before on the podcast about actually things that require you with lots of certainty are hard. So I play a lot of netball and netball's hard actually because you, you've got to be guaranteed to turn up and you're in a team and stuff. Whereas actually running, I find, which I don't enjoy quite as much, but it's way easier because it's very flexible yeah. and it's free and you can yeah. in the summer you can do it in the evening. So yeah. I think just this point about... It's just recalibrating, I think. It doesn't mean you have to lose a sense of who you are, but you have got to do this kind of recalibration. The other thing which you can recalibrate is your social life. So I yeah. thought when we had kids, like, we couldn't go to cinema. And then I realised we could go to cinema, we just couldn't go as a couple. Yeah. And also, like, recalibrating, like, birthday parties for kids. So, like, if I do a birthday party now, I'll very often say, well, we'll do a kids' party from four to six and all the parents come in for a drink. And then you kind of catch up with all of your friends locally. Yeah. Everybody's gone by seven because they're all taking their kids home. <laughs> but you've seen people and you, you've yeah, had an chat. adult chat yeah, and the yeah. kids have ran rampage through your house and garden Sleep and to it. somebody's pissed on the stairs it's fine um but you you know you have you have to find ways to kind of fit your social life into it and for a while you're just like in this desert where like there's nothing I'm just in my house going bananas yeah. with this child um and it's just like I think yeah. it is recalibrating all the areas of your life so that you're happy and the thing I've actually found hardest is almost recalibrating when maybe people are in a different life stage to you yeah, the times where I used to see some of my friends maybe who haven't got kids is the times where I'm now the least available and they're the most available. Yeah. And so that's actually the bit I've had to probably work the hardest at because some of those people are my best friends. Yeah. And so sometimes that is when you've got to go to your partner. You need to look after Max because I'm going to go and do this thing with my friend. Or you make the effort and you think, you know, it's when you do go, right, I'm going to take the pram on the bloody underground because yeah. I'm so desperate to see my friend that I'm going to do it or yeah. see my sister and stuff. And that that was the bit probably, like you say, it's almost a bit easier if people are in the same life stage as you. Yeah. But I think just one of my kind of hints and tips would be recognise that if people are on a different stage, probably what works for you won't work for them. One of the things I did with the charity that I run and volunteering, the weekly calls we used to always do were at 6.30 on a Monday night. Now, what happens at 6.30? Bath time. But I didn't know that before I had a kid. And actually, I suddenly realised I created something that was massively unfriendly to anyone who was a parent. Because yep. that is like the sweet spot of time where there's a load of parenting happening. Yep. So it's all those kind of things you just... Until it happens, you just don't kind of imagine them. Yeah. So if people wanted to, other than obviously reading your book, but if people wanted to find out more about the things that you've done, you obviously do a lot of writing, um, people can follow you on Twitter and those kind of things. Where's the best place for people to find you and find out more? LinkedIn, uh, Christine Armstrong. I have a website, christinearmstrong.com, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram as C Armstrong LDN for London, if that sounds Ooh. a bit weird. Um, <laughs> so I am very findable, and I write a lot for the Sunday Times. I write a bit for Red and Grazia, so you probably see things around. Well, do you know what? You popped up in my, in my holiday twice because I was reading your book, obviously, consciously, but I'd also bought Red magazine. Ah. And then I was like, Hello. You know, when you have that kind of conscious thing of once you're everywhere. kind of in the world. She's like, everywhere. And then <laughs> I'd also seen you in Grazia because for some reason the week before I bought that and I was like, oh. Everywhere. Yeah, so. the Sunday Times has been promoting the piece that I wrote last year when the book came out as well. So lots of people have been telling me they've seen that recently. With so. that lovely photo. Yeah. I really, if you've not seen it, there's a brilliant photo of Christine sort of um, 
with loads of stuff just like juggling around you, isn't it? In kind of children a running around in circles. Um, but it's a, like, it's actually a really beautiful photo. It's like it's, it's really nice. It is in my bathroom. I have to confess. Oh, that's that's <laughs> nice. Oh, I like that. That's a really good confession. So, if you were to give people one bit of advice for us to finish for today, if people, whether they're thinking of being a parent, whether they're already a parent, what's the one thing you want to leave people with? I think have a discussion about it. I interviewed these uh, brilliant gay dads in New York who had to adopt and they, in order to adopt, had to do therapy and answer surveys and write essays about Mm. how they were going to parent. And they said that it just like cleared all the decisions in advance. So I'd say replicate that, you know, make decisions, plan it and figure it out before it all happens (laughs) around you. (laughs) Or figure out as much as you can, maybe, before it all happens. Thank you so much, Christine, for joining us. It was a pleasure to read the book um, on holiday. I really enjoyed it. And I'm not always a massive fan of every kind of non-fiction book. I'm a massive fiction reader. So it has to kind of really grab me to get me all the way through. Um, So I really enjoyed reading it. Slightly wish I'd read it all a, a little bit sooner. And I've already recommended it to about three of my friends who are all going to give me the exact same feedback of like, because they've got toddlers, why didn't I read this when they were born? But I'm like, well, if I tell them, they can tell their friends and everyone can tell their friends. Tell anyone you know in an antenatal club. Yeah, <laughs> almost, they could give it out, you see, NCT. That could be the dream. Thank you so much. It's been lovely to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Christine. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. You did something for the 